Let's open our Bibles now, though, to Romans chapter 15, as we are working our way through this glorious epistle. We're nearing the end. We're really coming into the final section of the book. It goes pretty quick from here. And so we are uh, picking up where we left off last week. That has got us in verse 14. So once you have your Bibles open, let's stand up together in submission in honor of the Word of God. Hear the word of the Lord now from Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, your church, that through your living word, by your spirit, we hear the very voice of our God. We are transformed by that same spirit from the kingdom of darkness into light, from blindness to sight, from hard, dead hearts into hearts of flesh. Pray this morning, Lord, that by your spirit, through your word, you would accomplish all of your good purposes. We pray, Lord, that we would be transformed more and more into the likeness of our Savior. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, you can be seated. Well, as I said, we've now come into the closing section of the letter to the Romans, and this last section gives us amazing insight into the nature of Paul's ministry, into the life of the early church. These things will help us in our own ministry as a church as well, and just as the book of Romans has the longest introduction of any of Paul's letters, the book of Romans has the longest conclusion of any of Paul's letters. Paul has never met these saints. Paul has never met the Roman church, and yet he loves them deeply. He longs to meet them. He longs to find a way to to make them partners with him in ministry. And so Paul includes here in his conclusion a deeper look into his ministry, describing himself as 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 a minister to the Gentiles, as an apostle, as a missionary, as a church planter, as one who has been persecuted for the cause of Christ. And and in today's passage, Paul wants to encourage this Roman church, these Roman Christians. He has given them throughout this letter some very strong exhortations. He has even pointed out some of the clear tensions that are going on right within their local fellowship. And so he doesn't want them to be discouraged. And and he reminds them of the reason that he writes in such a bold manner to them. It's because he's called of God to do so. He is called of God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And those are really the broad categories of, of the message today as we consider this text. It is Paul's word of encouragement to the church at Rome and Paul's own calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles. First, he begins with with a word of encouragement. Just imagine if the Apostle Paul would write a letter to this church, 
to us here at Maple Grove. And, and in the writing, he, he exposes some of the big sins here at Maple Grove. We, we would probably feel somewhat discouraged. We would probably feel somewhat ashamed or, or overwhelmed. Some might even be offended. And by might, I mean some would definitely be offended. Some would ask, who does he think he is? He's never even been here. Who who does he think he is to say such things to us, to to command us, to instruct us? Well, that's probably how some of the Roman Christians felt when they received this letter, and Paul knows it. He has written to them about some very serious things. If we just consider the last couple of chapters that we've been walking through this last couple of months, chapters 11 through 14 have shown us some things about the Roman church, that Paul knows about them. There are some tensions there. There are tensions between Jew and Gentile Christians. There is some measure of disunity going on in this local fellowship. Chapter 13 suggests that there's some unhappiness with the government going on within this local fellowship. They don't know exactly how to relate to the Roman government, to those who are in authority over them. Chapter 16 is going to point to some false teachers who have, who have infiltrated the ranks and continue to try to infiltrate the ranks to stir up division within the church. Paul has reliable information about what exactly it is that's going on in the church in Rome, and there is no doubt that they would have been somewhat embarrassed as Paul addresses these particular issues in this letter, which I might add was presented to them publicly. They didn't all get their own copy of the letter, go home and read this, we'll get together and talk about it later. That's not how this works. Here is the letter to be read aloud in the corporate worship service while we all turn and look at each other when Paul names our particular sins. And so Paul, in concluding this letter, wants to encourage them. He wants to assure them of his confidence in them. Look at verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, You yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct one another. Now that would be encouraging coming from such a one as the Apostle Paul, would it not? It's not empty flattery. But Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you. And and he loves them. He has not met them, but he loves them dearly as beloved family. And so he uses affectionate terms. He says, my brothers which of course is an inclusive term of of the men and the women in the church. He tells them specifically what it is that satisfies him about them. This isn't a vague, I really like you guys, you're doing great. No, Paul says, here's what it is. And he outlines three things about the church that he is particularly satisfied with. And this is a good short definition of what a good church is. He says, you are full of goodness. You are filled with all knowledge and you are able to instruct one another. If that were true of a church, then that is a good outline of what a good church looks like. Full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. He says you are full of goodness. We we know this word goodness best from the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But what exactly is goodness? A, A helpful way to understand goodness is to compare goodness with righteousness. Righteousness is holiness. It's purity. It's lawfulness. 
And Paul says, you not only have that going on, you're not just concerned with avoiding sin, you're actually filled with tenderness. You're actually filled with kindness. You're generous. You're servant, servant-hearted towards one another. That's what goodness means. Goodness means generosity. It means kindness. One author illustrates the difference between righteousness and goodness by talking about the story of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. Joseph, as we all know in the Christmas story, was planning to divorce his fiancée, Mary, because he found out she was pregnant and he knew for a fact that he was not the father of this child. So this author highlights the fact that he wanted to divorce her was because he was righteous. He had not sinned and he believed she had. But the fact that he wanted to do it quietly was because he was full of goodness. So Paul says to the Roman Christians, you are full of goodness. These these Roman Christians are not legalistic. They're not cold. They're not ungracious. They're not merely scrupulous. They are filled with goodness. And then he he commends them because they are filled with all knowledge. Paul's use of this word all, you are filled with all knowledge, it doesn't mean that he's claiming they are omniscient. We know Paul is not claiming that they are omniscient and have all the knowledge that there is in all the universe for all time. It doesn't refer to knowing every single thing. I would put forward, they know very little about small engine mechanics. Maybe not as little as I know, but very little. Paul's not saying you know every single thing. It's to be filled with the right kind of knowledge. They had a deep knowledge of God's truth in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were doctrinally sound, is what Paul's telling them. They were well taught. Today, many churches seem to pride themselves on their lack of doctrinal and theological depth. They wear it as a badge of honor. They despise knowledge. They despise the weightier matters. They reject doctrinal and theological preaching. They celebrate shallow emotionalism as if it is the height of spirituality and Christian living. But that is not the Apostle Paul's standard for what a church ought to be for what it is that makes a good church. When, when he wants to commend the Roman Christians, he tells them how pleased he is with the breadth of their knowledge. And we need to note here, it's important to see these two things going together. Goodness, to be filled with goodness, and to be filled with knowledge. This is a picture of well-balanced Christianity, a good heart and a good head. We can't afford to sacrifice either one of those. Remember Jesus' exhortation to the church in Ephesus that we read in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus says this to these saints in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So far, so good. That's essential, and it's good. No, 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 no true church, no healthy church is going to be lacking in that area, in the area of being able to discern the true from the false, being able to discern God's word from heresy and blasphemy. 
But he doesn't stop there. Verse 4 says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This church had Timothy as a pastor for a while. Had the Apostle John as a pastor for a while. They had excellent doctrine. But they had lost their first love. Was this first love, love for God or love for one another? Most commentators would agree it's love in general that they have lost. Love towards God. Love towards men. Their hearts have grown cold. They've got their theological ducks in a row. They're doing essential things. God is saying, you hate the false teachers, which, by the way, I hate also. This is why we're not afraid to call out false teaching and false teachers in this church. Some would say, don't do that. Don't say people's names. Don't do that. God loves them. No, that's not what he says here. I hate their works. It's essential that the church stand in truth. And this church was, but their hearts were cold. And so what did Christ say? He, he doesn't say, well, you're taking a bold stand for truth. You're suffering for it. That's good enough for me. That's not what he says. He threatens to remove their lampstand. In other words, to, to remove them as a church. When salt is no longer salty, it's useless. And when a church is loveless, it is not a true church. It is not representing the name of Christ rightly. We need to have both goodness and knowledge. And then he, he brings this third commendation to them. You are able to instruct one another. Paul, Paul clearly considers these Roman Christians to be mature, full of goodness, full of all knowledge, able to instruct one another. He commends them for their ability to instruct one another. They admonish, they counsel, they exhort one another. They encourage one another in the faith. All of that's wrapped up in this word that Paul uses, instruct. This, this word in the Greek, theteo, to, to instruct. It's in, in the late 1980s, and you may have heard this word nuthetic before. In, in the late 1980s, there was a revival in Christian counseling, and one of the primary leaders of that movement was a guy named Jay Adams, a Reformed Presbyterian, committed to the total inspiration and sufficiency of the Word of God. It was his conviction that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the people of God. That's the means by which God is working. And this method he derived from this understanding and this conviction, dependent on Scripture, he called Newthetic Counseling. Taking this word right here from this passage. Able to instruct one another. Adams in his book, Competent to Counsel, points out there's no actual English equivalent to this word that Paul uses, nuthateo. There's, there's no straight one-to-one -one corollary, but this word really has three main uses. It means something like exhort. But more than just instructing, it's instructing for change. That's what an exhortation is. It's not just the transfer of information. It is information for a purpose. It's information for transformation. It's also got a harder meaning, like the word rebuke, 
to confront one another in sin. It can also mean something like admonish, where you encourage and edify someone else. And so when Paul commends these Christians in Rome for their ability to instruct one another, he's not merely saying you're good teachers. Rather, he's saying you are faithful in ministering to one another's souls in every season of life with exhortation, with admonition, with rebuke when necessary. And and Paul views this kind of counseling, this kind of instruction of one another as the job of not just pastors, not just elders, not just professional counselors. He sees this as the job of the whole church. This kind of instruction, this kind of counseling, he sees as the job of of all Christians. He he writes in in the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is one of the reasons that we sing out loud corporately on Sunday mornings. We are instructing one another. Paul says that in a couple places. He says it here in Colossians. He says it in Ephesians 5. We are actually instructing one another in our singing. So we ought to sing out. We're not just declaring the praises of God, which is enough reason to shout, to sing. But we're instructing one another. So saints, your brothers and sisters have to be able to hear your voice if they're going to be instructed by you in your singing. It's another reason that, that we're going to begin to incorporate um, the Apostles' Creed into our services where we will all stand and, and say it together. We're instructing one another, not just in the words we read, but in the words we speak and in the words we hear. It's one of the best gifts we can give to our kids, by the way, in the church. These core foundations of the faith that they will have memorized just by use. When they get to college, when they, when they come into these places and into these settings where their faith is challenged, what will come to their minds? I believe in God the Father Almighty. And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. When they're fearful at night in their beds, and what comes to mind is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. What a gift to give. We encourage, we instruct one another. But Paul's view of a healthy church, though, it's not one where everyone meddles. It's not one where everyone imposes their opinion on one another. Didn't we? We just saw that in all of chapter 14 and the beginning part of chapter 15, where Paul instructs us in no uncertain terms to not impose ourselves on one another extra biblically to take our opinions and our convictions and put that on everyone else. And so he's certainly not flip-flopping on that right now. But a healthy church is one where everyone faithfully serves the other with truth from God's word. To see them grow. To see them benefit in their life and in their faith. Now you can't do that unless the word of God has been hidden in your own heart. But that's the call for each one of us. Sometimes to walk together in this way requires a word of encouragement. To put your arm around somebody. To rejoice with those who rejoice. To to weep with those who weep. To mourn with those who mourn. To just point our struggling brother or sister to the hope that is in Christ. Sometimes it requires a word of rebuke or correction in love. 
Well, whatever it is, it's more than the merely polite, casual acquaintances, the shallow relationships that so many of us are used to as a part of our church life. This, this is life lived together in true community as the family of faith. It is interdependent, intentionally intrusive, biblical fellowship. We want to live our lives together for the glory of God and for the good and joy of one another. And Paul has set the example for what that looks like in this letter. Offering the encouragement, the reminders of the gospel. Offering even rebuke and correction where necessary. He says this in verse 15, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. He, he recognizes that the Romans might, on receiving this letter, might feel like he's being too bold, like he's being presumptuous. And so he reminds them of who he is and what his call is. He is, verse 16 says, a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. This is my calling from the Lord to do exactly what I'm doing here. He is an apostle appointed by God. And so he has the right, he has the authority to speak to them this way. He is not meddling. He is doing his apostolic duty. And he says to them, I've written to you so boldly by way of reminder. R.C. Sproul in his commentary says, this statement is something of a thinly veiled apology. It's not that Paul has done anything wrong. He knows he has done exactly what he needed to do. This is inspired, the inspired word of God. Paul is not a, apologizing for that. All he's doing is acknowledging everything I've said here. I know you've already heard this. You've been instructed well. You've been taught well. You're, you're, not, you're not necessarily receiving new information from me, Roman Christians. They had the apostolic gospel before this letter reached them. They knew they should be loving and sacrificial and serving one another before this letter reached them. But Paul tells them, and Paul tells us, that they and we need reminding. We need remind. It's not that we hear these things one time and we go, well, that's it, I already know. No, we need reminding of these things, of all of these things. Ours is a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We are not looking for new information. New information in the faith once for all delivered to the saints is called heresy. We're not looking for that. Of course, we never stop learning for all of our lives. This, this as Spurgeon said, this is a book that widens and deepens with our years. But the point of preaching is not new information. We need to be reminded of the same truths over and over and over. We need to be called again to obedience. We need to be confronted and rebuked and encouraged with these gospel truths that we already know. There's something supernatural that happens in the Holy Spirit-filled proclamation of the living Word of God. It's one of the reasons we keep the kids in here for the preaching, most of which flies over their sweet little heads. Because there's something more going on here than the transfer of information. Something supernatural that is taking place. We need to be reminded, though. We need to, to hear it again and again and again, over and over and over. And this is the means by which the Holy Spirit does a transformative work in our lives. 
Paul then shifts into talking about the specifics of his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles as we look back in verse 15. Because of the grace given to me by God. What is the grace given to him by God? Well, he tells us to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. In the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Here in verse 16, Paul uses five different words that connects his apostolic ministry to the priestly service of the Old Testament. He says he's a minister. It's only used one time in the New Testament right here, that particular word. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used a lot. And it's used in reference to the Old Testament priests. He says that he's in the priestly service of the gospel. He says that in his priestly service, the Gentiles are the offering that's being offered up. He has this idea, he he speaks of an acceptable offering. We see this idea of the acceptable offering to God throughout all of Scripture. 1 Peter 2, verse 5 says we're to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. He uses this word sanctified. That's, That's Old Testament language for the setting apart of something for ceremonial worship of God. And so Paul uses this priestly language to identify himself here, but we need to be clear, it's a metaphor that Paul is using. Paul is no more a priest than we are a sacrifice. Paul is not a priest. Pastors are not priests. Those in Christian traditions who are called priests are not priests. Priests are those who offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And in the new covenant, there is only one who pays for our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. A priest is also the mediator who functions as a bridge, a go-between. One who mediates between God and man. And Jesus Christ is the sole mediator of the new covenant. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. There's only one true priest. So why do some Christian traditions call their ministers priests? Well, let's start by not apologizing for them. It is a highly unbiblical practice. It comes from the belief in the time of the Reformation, the idea was that God's grace came to us through the Pope, his earthly representative, down through the various offices of the church, finally to the priest who was the one who dispensed God's saving and sanctifying grace to the people. In this way, they made a barrier between Christ and and the sinner. We needed another mediator. Christ invites all to come directly to himself and there find forgiveness and grace and the Holy Spirit. The Roman Catholic Church blasphemously interposed the priesthood in between man and Christ. It's true. We, we need someone to stand before God on our behalf. We need someone who will stand in the place of sinners and make a pure offering that will be acceptable to a holy God, to make atonement for our crimes against him. But only Christ can do this. No man can do this. 
How does Christ fulfill the role of priest? First, he's God who became a man in order to represent us. The author of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So he's God become man. Secondly, he's perfectly sinless. In order to be the qualified offerer of sacrifice to God, he needed to be sinless. He needed to be righteous himself. But also, not only is he sinless, and that makes him the qualified offering, but he is sinless, which makes him the spotless offering itself. The spotless offering for sin. Third, his priesthood has two parts. It has on the one hand his role as offerer and offering during his humiliation, but also during his exaltation, he continues to intercede on behalf of, to pronounce blessings upon the church. This twofold priestly office of Christ. So since Christ is our only high priest, how can Paul speak of himself as offering priestly service? How can Peter refer to Christians as a royal priesthood? How can Luther later speak of the priesthood of all the believers? How can this be? Well, the central function of priesthood was to offer sin offerings on behalf of the sinner to God. That has been fulfilled once for all in the Lord Jesus Christ. But other minor aspects of their function continue in the New Testament. Just as, as priests in the Old Testament were set apart for God, so too the believer is set apart by the Holy Spirit to be holy unto the Lord. Whereas the Old Testament priests offered bloody sacrifices to God, we offer the sacrifice of praise, which actually includes the offering of our whole selves to the Lord as living sacrifices in obedience and love. Third, we are to pray to God on the behalf of others. That is a priestly ministry. We have direct access to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're called to intercede on behalf of others. Not, not in the 100% effectual way in which Christ intercedes, but we are called to interpose on behalf of other people. And so Paul uses this priestly language for, for himself. The New Testament uses this priestly language for us Christians. A couple more things we see, though, in Paul's ministry here. First, he tells us whose minister he is. He says, a minister of Jesus Christ. We saw this at the very beginning in the introduction to the book of Romans. Paul did not appoint himself. He is called by God. It is Jesus who calls individuals into his service. Second, he tells us who he's a minister to. He says, to the Gentiles. In particular, Paul is set apart by God to take the good news that Jesus Christ has come to save people from every nation and tribe and tongue and take this news to the very ends of the earth. Third, Paul tells us what is he a minister of says, in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Paul is a minister of the gospel. 
And it's the gospel of God. It is God's gospel. It is God's message. It is God's good news. The message isn't Paul's message. Paul is a herald of the king. The message belongs to the king, not to the herald, not to the messenger. And Paul is literally giving his life to make this message known. What is the king's message? The king's message is this. It starts where the the letter to the Romans starts, with very bad news. You're a sinner. You stand condemned under the just judgment of a holy God, and there is nothing you can do to get yourself out of it. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You are cemented into this rebellion in your father Adam, and there is no way for you to break yourself free. In fact, Paul tells us you've got no desire to break yourself free. But the king's message is good news. That's what gospel means. It is good news. God is gracious and compassionate. He's given his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay for the sins that you have committed so that you can be saved. So that you will desire to be saved. So that you can be adopted by him as his son with an inheritance beyond all imagination. Ultimately, this king's message ends with this news. The whole world will be made new. Fourth, Paul also tells us to what end he serves. He says, so the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. Paul has been so bold with the Romans because of his desire to ensure that the Roman church is holy and acceptable to God. Fifth, Paul tells us how this ministry will be fulfilled. He says, it'll be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The sinner can only be saved. The sinner can only be made holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul, an an astounding, a towering intellect. A, a, A man so brilliant that even the Apostle Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Paul says some things that are difficult to understand, and over this last couple years, we say, Amen. But Paul's not relying on his intellectual powers. Paul, Paul who stood toe-to-toe with the greatest minds and philosophers of his day on their territory, and they couldn't hold a candle to him, is not relying on his power of persuasion. He's not relying on his ability to inspire. He is relying on the Spirit of God to bless the truth of God. That's how his ministry will be fulfilled. There's a lot we can draw out of this very descriptive verse. I just want to focus us in on one thing. Paul desires above all else to present to God a sanctified, acceptable church that pleases God. He is willing to upset the Romans... He is willing to get specific about their sin because he has a calling. Because he is is committed to presenting a pure and holy bride to Christ. 
His difficult and direct statements, which, which at time address hot topics in the culture. Hot topics within this local church. Even at times naming names. Addressing issues that might make people look bad, even in that moment where this letter is being read out loud in the local church. All of these things are coming from a desire for the glory of God in a holy church. That's what's motivating this. That's what faithful pastors do. Not, 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 not out of a desire to control people. Not out of a desire to manipulate or to gain and hold on to power, but to present a holy, mature people to the Lord. That is our goal in all that we do. To present a holy and mature bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purity for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If Paul came to speak to us today, would he be pleased? Would he be pleased in what he sees? Would, would there be difficult things he would have to spell out for us in love? Would there be difficult things that he would have to say because we're not a people committed to good works? It's a sobering thought to think of what he might say to us. Let me just close by reminding you of the things that Paul has said to the Romans. Christ has paid a high price to save us from our enslavement to sin. This liberty we now have as sons is a liberty in order to serve God, not to go back to our old entrapments, not, not to flaunt our freedoms. Paul would tell us, let the world see that you love God more than sin. That, that he is worth your obedience because he is your greatest treasure. That his laws are good and right. That he is real and as lovely and glorious as the Bible says that he is. That, that we ought to let that truth be seen in our goodness that overflows in kindness and generosity towards one another, in graciousness towards one another, in love for one another, that, that others will see and know that we are Christians because of our love. Let it be seen in our commitment to the truth of God. Let, let it be seen in the way that we as a family speak the truth to one another in love. I'll just close with these words from Robert Murray McShane. He once wrote this. It's not great talent that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus Christ. A holy Christian is an awesome weapon, an awesome tool, an awesome encouragement in the hand of 
God. May, may we, brothers and sisters, strive together for holiness, to, to grow in knowledge, to grow in goodness, that we may be fruitful for Christ, our King, for his kingdom's sake. Amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living word. Lord, we rejoice in you, our saving King. We again, Lord, submit ourselves before you, before the Lordship of Christ. We bow our knee before him and we profess that we belong to him. He has saved us. He's redeemed us. He has reconciled us to God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We rejoice that we need not tremble when we stand before judgment because of the righteousness of Christ applied to us through his sinless life and death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit who now dwells within us. We do pray, Lord, as a church, that you would make us grow in our goodness, grow in our knowledge of all truth, grow in our love and in our reverence and in our righteousness. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to grow in our faithful witness, that we would be a city set upon a hill a shining light into the darkness, that we would be faithful heralds of the King's gospel. We pray and we believe that by your Spirit, through your Word, you will accomplish astounding things even through us. This family of repenting sinners who have no hope and life and death, but that we belong to you. Pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.